I kind of have this naive belief that if you keep making arguments in a liberal society, the better argument in the end will win. It may take some time, or you may figure out in the process that you missed a point, and, and that will change things. But yeah, that's what happened. It's kind of like liberal democracy working. But I think, you know, my model for writing is not being a member of a political coalition. It is being an individual who can try and be as independent as possible. That doesn't mean objective, because obviously we all bring biases with us. But we hope to expose those biases to other people's biases. And over time, figure out what you think might be true. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Today's a great day to be alive. You knew that too. I hope the sun is shining on you and in you and from you on all those around you. I have a great show to share with you today. My guest is a gentleman named Andrew Sullivan. He is a journalist and author who has just published a collection of his work called Out on a Limb, Selected Writing 1989 to 2021. I sincerely hope you will listen to this interview, especially if you don't know who Andrew Sullivan is. To me, Andrew is one of the most courageous independent writers in the country during a time when independent voices are desperately needed because objective journalism is dying a not slow and very ugly death. The New York Times has called Andrew one of the most influential writers of his generation and describes his body of work with these words. Conventional wisdom is frequently wrong. No partisan side has a monopoly on truth. In these circumstances, a nation needs writers and thinkers who will say hard things, whose fearlessness gives you confidence that you're hearing their true thoughts, close quotes. And with Andrew Sullivan, you're always hearing his true thoughts. Here's a little quiz I made up to see if you might find Andrew's writing interesting. Number one, do you think the solutions to our country's most important problems lie not at the extremes, but somewhere in between the political philosophies of Donald Trump and AOC? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Number two, do you believe deeply and truly that black lives and hearts and minds absolutely matter, but think that defunding the police is a bad idea? You're allowed to think that. You're allowed to hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time. They are not contradictory. Number three, do you think that we should and can do more to empower black people economically, but don't believe that either math or gravity is racist? Number four, do you think it was a good idea for the San Francisco Unified School District to try to rename Abraham Lincoln High School because the great emancipator didn't list his pronouns on his LinkedIn profile? Okay, that's partially true, but they did try to do that. Number five, in other words, do you reject the hate on the far right, but also reject the complete and utter horseshit on the far left? If you answered yes to any of these questions, Andrew Sullivan is your kind of guy. So fair warning, this conversation is political. And because it's Andrew, he will irritate both staunch conservatives and staunch progressives. He's an individual who fits into nobody's box. He's gay, he's HIV positive, yet he's also conservative and a devout Catholic. He is British, yet a very proud and patriotic American who knows our history better than 99.9% of his fellow citizens. In his lifetime, he's voted not only for Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush, but also for Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden. Most importantly, as the Times suggests, he's willing to say exactly what he thinks amidst a media and political environment that is polluted by increasingly divided, increasingly loud, and increasingly misguided voices at either end of the political spectrum. Here's a little bit more about him. Andrew Sullivan has been out on a limb writing for three decades. He was the editor of The New Republic for five years 
and was a vocal voice in support of gay marriage going back to 1989 when the concept was a pipe dream. His work has appeared in dozens of outlets, including Time, Salon, The New York Times, The Sunday Times, and The Atlantic. In addition to his new release, his previous books include The Conservative Soul, Virtually Normal, and Love Undetectable. As you'll hear, we recorded this interview a few weeks ago, the day after Italy defeated England in the Euro Cup finals in a shootout, a tragic shootout, at least tragic from the English perspective. So condolences to all my English football friends. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Andrew, why do you write? That's a really good question. I've never really... uh... (laughs) <laughs> I've stopped him over? at the game. I've stopped Andrew <laughs> Sullivan. Can we start it over? I'm sorry. I just, that was woo. <laughs> sure. Anything, yeah, anything, yeah. anything. Let me think. I write to cope. I think I write to assimilate in my own head, all the shit that's going around in my head and around me. I sometimes describe the act of writing a piece as, and please don't get this wrong. Uh, it feels like I'm vomiting something that something has been swirling around in me and it feels uncomfortable and I have issues around it and conflicts. It gets more and more difficult for me to think about or deal with. And so then I just pour it all out on the page as it were. It feels as if I puked something and then I feel better the way you feel better after you've puked and there's a kind of calm (laughs) to it afterwards. And I think when I was a kid, you know, I wrote to escape, too, to find a way in my own mind to create a world that wasn't just the world that was consuming me at the time. It's a kind of place to go where you want to figure stuff out. So you have something inside of you that is disturbing you and writing helps you make sense of it? Yes, I think that's roughly what it is. I write in my head all the time. I keep thinking about things and I think about them in sentences and after a while it becomes burdensome to keep all those in your head and there's only so much that weed can do to kind of get them at the margins of your head and so writing is the other way around it to actually get one's thoughts on a piece of paper which enables you to get some distance from them and then you're able to understand them a little bit better Now, of course, there are different kinds of writing, so that when I was blogging every day around the clock, it was more reacting to things instantly. And there are other ways of writing, obviously, the longer pieces. And the book has both the quick columns in it, but also some of these longer essays where I'm really trying to grapple with something I'm really struggling with inside. So the new book is called Out on a Limb, Selected Writing, 1989 to 2021, which includes dozens of different pieces from several different outlets. As you reviewed these essays all these years later, did you see a consistent through line for what Andrew Sullivan's writing is over all those years? I'm not the best judge. I don't think any writer is the best judge of their own writing. But I think, and I hope this is true, and reading one's own work is excruciating in many ways, because when you... (laughs) When you read it, you, you don't, you, you're aware suddenly immediately of all the flaws and you're immediately aware of, of what you could have put better. And also it's like hearing your own voice, you know, on the voicemail or something. It just makes you just feel, ooh, I just don't <laughs> want to be around that. I mean, I can't watch myself on TV, for example, or listen to myself 
on a podcast. I just have this horror of myself. So it was, it was not easy. The first of all, researching this was just ridiculous. I've written millions of pieces, it turns out. I had some really good helpers in, in that, helping me sift through it all. But then I think just, uh, I think the theme, if anything, is I'm just trying to figure out the truth about the world. I know that sounds banal, but, you know, it's true. I, I just wanted to figure out why. And I think it comes from, maybe it comes a little bit from being gay at some level because there's something inside you you don't understand. And then you write it out in order to get a better handle on it. And that's certainly what you can see in the early part of the book. I'm really trying to figure through what the f- it means to be a homosexual, you know, and how does this fit into the world? And then also how to fit in religious faith with the world, let alone fit all that together. So I think, I hope, and I think what I was trying to do with the book is some people have been saying, oh, you've changed massively either the last few years or you changed massively in the early 2000s or you you flip-flop around. And the point of this book was partly to say, you know, I haven't really. If you look at this, I think there is a consistent small C conservative philosophy that's hoped to be open-minded uh, and attempt to, to understand the world and to be at home in it and to understand the particular part of history that we're living through. And that's why I kept it as a chronology, because I think it's helpful perhaps to see how someone's writing has to change given changing circumstances. So the book has the very early arguments for marriage equality, for example, where I'm sort of saying, I know you think I'm crazy. I know this is nuts, but hold on a minute. Don't, don't jump at me. Don't at me. And so by the end of the book, it's taken for granted this thing. happens. So you watch the change of tone happen. And there's a certain amount of dramatic irony when I'm writing early. Of course, I know we have no chance of getting this, but it's worth trying. So there's a certain amount of dramatic irony in the book too, as you see that history unfold. Yeah, I find that to be really interesting to read about these issues in the present tense, as opposed to thinking about them three decades removed and understanding how it's all going to play out. You mentioned specifically the marriage equality writing, and it brought to mind that Schopenhauer quote about truth patheth through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. Third, it's accepted as being self-evident. So with regard to marriage equality, how do we go from it being an abomination to it being, well, obviously, in three decades? I think it's a combination of things. I think part of it was the fact that many of us set about to craft arguments that really were solid, that would actually address the middle of the country and our opponents on terms that they wouldn't find horrifying. So we talked to them in terms of what we have in common, what gays and straights have in common. We talked about joining institutions rather than undermining or subverting them. We talked about our ability to become and be fully equal in our own families. So it was a kind of pro-family argument. We talked about the good things about taking responsibility for another person and vice versa, which is a good socially conservative argument. In other words, we just kept those arguments up and we looked for every opportunity in public, like a lawsuit or, or some kind of moment where we could take that moment and make the arguments again. And you do that consistently and aggressively for a couple of decades, you can actually begin to change people's minds. At the same time, we had two things happen. One, we had the AIDS epidemic, which essentially pushed the question of gay equality right onto the front of people's agenda in a way that hadn't been before. And then we had the reaction of the Bush administration to all this, which kind of cemented the coalition in favor of marriage equality in a way that never happened before. 
And then you had the courts. And you also had, at the same time, this really remarkable, you know, enormous wave of, of individual people just in their ordinary families coming out and saying, I want to get married or I'm gay. And that little by little, person by person across the country over 25 years, changed the debate. And especially if you frame the debate in terms of something like civil marriage, and you frame it in terms of responsibility and equality. You don't frame it in terms of our loathing of you, our desire to subvert you, <laughs> our desire to, to overturn society. You say, just let us be a part of it. We already are in many ways. We know you already. So please let us. And it worked. And it didn't take work overnight. I mean, the number of people I had to go talk to, uh, like fundamentalist churches, crazy rabbis, a whole variety of different people including like on the far left, like lesbian Avengers who pick at me and stuff. But I just felt the argument was right. And I kind of have this naive belief that if you keep making arguments in a liberal society, the better argument in the end will win. It may take some time and you may, or you may figure out in the process that you missed a point and, and that will change things. But yeah, that's what happened. It's kind of like liberal democracy working. For your efforts, you were rewarded by people who are a bit more progressive, let's say, by being labeled a patriarchal soldier for heteronormativity. So, yes. So it seems yes. like you can't win. No. Well, you couldn't win. Sometimes you can't. I mean, that's why I call this book Out on a Limb. I mean, it felt like, for example, in the marriage equality stuff, I was both assailed from within the gay rights community and outside of it. Or even things like, like supporting Obama... I lost all my support from Republicans. And when I turned on torture in the Iraq war, suddenly I was canceled, as it were, by the right wing. And they never linked to me or published me or talked about me from then on. But I think, you know, my model for writing is not being a member of a political coalition. It is being an individual who, who can try and be as, as independent as possible. That doesn't mean objective, because obviously we all bring ourselves, bring biases with us. But we hope to expose those biases to other people's biases and over time figure out what you think might be true. And that's what I think this book is really, the real theme is it's just trying to understand the world better. So let's talk about that unique bundle of beliefs that you have using some of your own descriptions. So you are for drug legalization, you are for gay marriage, you are for criminal justice reform. You believe the climate change is real, find Trump to be abhorrent, you are HIV positive and a self-described practicing homosexual, which by the way, I laughed out loud when I heard that and thought, well, if you want to improve, you've got to practice. <laughs> so with all these things, it might surprise people who aren't familiar with you that you're also a self-described conservative. How do you define that term? Well, it's a hard one to define in a way, because if you define it by the way you suddenly currently think of conservative, you come up with a bunch, if you're not careful, a bunch of culty, crazy QAnon, anti-government, anti-rational arguments and or postures. For me, conservatism in this deepest philosophical tradition is about is about keeping the whole society together. It's about stability. It's about not changing too fast, but not not change at all. It's about prudence. It's about skepticism and doubt. It's about doing less rather than doing more. And so you can see that conservatism can critique both Republicans and Democrats in equal measure if they push things too far 
or if they become ideologues. In other words, if they have this kind of manic set of ideas that they're intent on implementing, regardless of the consequences, and they get in love with this pure set of doctrines that they want to impose clearly upon the world. And conservatism says that's not a sane way to go about, that there is wisdom in the way in which society has already become what it has become. We shouldn't disrupt things unless we know exactly what we're replacing them with. And we should be prudent in understanding change. And we should also see our blessings. I mean, I think the thing what's happened in the country is that so many of our fundamental issues have actually been resolved that we're, I think, generating conflicts out of tribal needs for conflict as opposed to something that is actually real. And so the conservative's job is to say, hold on a minute, what's reality? How good are we? How bad are things? Are they really that bad? Are things going the way we want them to go to? And so on and so forth. And always suggesting a little moderation here, maybe a little caution here. Let's not go too far here. That's the role of the conservative. And of course, the Republicans don't match that label anymore. And in many respects, the Democrats don't. So I find myself in the middle, in a way, being hostile to what I would call Trump nihilism and authoritarianism, but also hostile to extreme liberal wokeism and and social justice, which has the same ideological tenor to it, and which seeks to zealously impose on the world its own vision of utopia. And a conservative will always say, absolutely not. How are you gonna how are you gonna fuck up my life by doing this? How do you know what the unintended consequences of this dramatic change is supposed to be? And what's your evidence? That's a conservative position which also is natural for an independent writer. Because I'm not answerable to any institution, any political party. I'm only answerable really to my readers. And I think that's what doing the blog helped me understand better, which is now the you know, the basic accountability of my substack, which is that every week after I've written a column, readers will write in and tell me that I'm full of it, that I didn't realize this or didn't realize that. or I'm criti- And I have to respond because I want to respond because I want to figure out where I'm wrong. That, I think, in the broadest sense, is a conservative instinct because a conservative knows what he doesn't know. A conservative knows that there's so much in the world he doesn't understand that everything he does is going to have to be provisional or he's going to be in error. And you don't want to be in error too much, especially if other people's lives are going to be affected by it. I've found personally that in this highly polarized time, when I try to post anything related to politics, even if I try to take an equivocating moderate view, I actually piss off more people than if I were to take an extremist view. If I were to go all right wing or all left wing, I would at least have 50% of my friends who agree with me. But if I go down the middle, I piss off like 85% of them. Yeah. As I read your writing, <laughs> I see you getting eviscerated by both left and right. So, like, what names have you been called by either side of the political debate? Oh, God, it goes on and on and on. I'm a white supremacist. I'm a bigot. I'm a misogynist. I'm a homophobe. I'm a transphobe. I'm a flaming liberal, a leftist, a commie. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are English, after all. Well, yes. And I won't even get into all the uh, he has AIDS, dementia stuff. Which, which has always been a healthy part of the discourse that I have to deal with. But, you know, I'm not one of these writers that is like, oh, my God, I'm traumatized by all these horrible names. This part of being in the public sphere is like people are going to say these horrible things about you. Now, they do say it in a way, especially recently, that's designed and aimed 
within a crowd of critics to smear and ostracize you permanently, to get you cancelled, as it were, and tainted. I am incredibly lucky that I've been writing for 30 years, as this book shows, and they can't quite dismiss me that way. Because, And that's part of the reason also to produce this book, because I'm caricatured all the time on Twitter, and people reduce me to one kind of thing or another. And this book is like saying, well, look, you, here's, here's the mic stuff. You can go read it yourself. <laughs> right. You see, it's not what you're saying it is. It isn't. It's really quite moderate. It's nuanced. It's taken shots at both sides. You know, it supported Reagan and Obama. I mean, maybe you find that crazy, but nonetheless, I present arguments for it and please engage the arguments. And so, yeah, I, and certainly in the current atmosphere and the current social media, it's never been harder to be a writer if you have in any way some sensitivity in your soul, because it is really, it is psychologically wounding to be called things and to be described in the way that you're described. And it has always been the case. I mean, you look, go back to my idols like George Orwell, absolutely detested by his intellectual peers, especially on the left, who thought he was a fucking fascist because he was actually not that fond of the Soviet Union at the time. He couldn't get 1984 published because it was so out of the context of his time. And it's one of the greatest books ever written about totalitarianism. So look... Or look at someone like Raymond Aron in France. These people were not, or Albert Camus, these are, I'm not comparing myself, but these are my idols. And they were models of independence in the middle of absolutely exponential squalls of ideological and tribal warfare. And so in some ways, I think this is, a, this is an actually wonderful time for an independent writer to stand up and to withstand some of the storms and to try and thread a needle that even if it isn't heard at the time, at some point, maybe look back on and said, well, you know, that guy was onto something. I'll push you on that. It's a great time. You know, technology has both sort of simultaneously destroyed journalism and created ways for independent writers to connect directly with their audiences without the auspices or platform of a major magazine or newspaper, right? So if, if you depended on a platform to reach your audience, you could be canceled. If your only relationship with an audience is your column on cnn.com when cnn decides you don't represent their values anymore you're gone but you've been in the business for 30 years you've got substack subscribers who are interested and willing to pay they seek you out how does a new writer with controversial views find their audience without pandering to one extreme or the other well it's increasingly hard i'm afraid and that's what concerns me i'm lucky but if it were me 30 years ago starting out where would i get a foothold where would i start because the mainstream media is now, you know, relentlessly hostile to any deviation of thought from a particular left-wing orthodoxy everywhere. And I was fired, obviously, from New York Magazine for my views, not for, not for something I'd written or for something. It wasn't a syntax issue that got you canned? It wasn't, it wasn't syntax. There was, there was subject-verb disagreement that led to your, your firing? They nominated me for Pulitzer and two years later fired me. Right. So it's clearly purely ideological. The only option, I think, is for younger writers to start a substack, to, as I used to say, start a blog, to build up, and it's also a means for discovering talent and writing. And people, one thing I learned at the blog, The Dish, which I started in 2000, is that you crowdsource wisdom with people who really do understand things a lot better and sometimes much better than your average pundit. 
get them to contribute. And a few of them are going to be so interesting and impacting on the world, they'll be able to develop their own channels, their own substack. So I think of someone like Coleman Hughes, who's just an undergraduate who burst onto the scene and really has enormous play. Or I think of a young man like Zaid Jilani, who's out there also doing similar stuff. And I come across young writers all the time doing this. The truth is that it's actually kind of fun right now to be a young writer and to challenge left orthodoxy or indeed Republican crazy. That's where the edge is. And, I, and I'm encouraged because, I mean, for example, this last week I thought, I realized I really wanted to let rip on the excesses of woke leftism. And I realized also my readers were sick to fucking death of me talking about it. <laughs> they write in all the time saying, shut up, we're tired, CRT, CRT. No, 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 no. So I sat down with Chris, my only other person, and I'm like, I'm just depressed because I want to write this, and yet I feel if I write it, we're going to lose a chunk of our readership. Anyway, after a huge wrangling and wrestling with the text and going forward with it, I put it out there and boom, we had a massive jump in subscriptions because you can easily get head faked by the way Twitter, especially, and social media wants to freak you into thinking the things that you want to say that you know are true will be so pissed on by them. There's no one outside there who's interested in what you have to say. The truth is, don't listen to them. You have to kind of keep your ears pugged to the people trying to heckle you to put you off what you're trying to say. One of the problems I think that we have in the world today is that these issues are highly complicated and nuanced and require the individual to do a lot of work to inform himself on the issues. If you were to just allow yourself to be swayed by headlines, you would be a completely uninformed human being. And so three or four months ago, an organization that I really care about that was apolitical and helping to change the lives of urban youth became politicized. And in my opinion, moved away from their mission about like, let's change people's lives through economic empowerment, as opposed to let's affiliate this organization with Black Lives Matter, anti-racism, et cetera. And I realized I didn't really know. I thought I knew what it meant, but I didn't know what it meant. And so I went back and I read how to be an anti-racist. And I read White Fragility and I read Ta-Nehisi Coates and came away smarter, more uncomfortable, but also clearer in how I think about this stuff. So when I started looking for people who were writing objectively about these things, I didn't find it in the mainstream media. Fox News uses it as a wedge issue. CNN ignores it altogether. Or when they do, they sort of downplay anybody who's got a problem with anti-racism. NPR, when they talk about anti-racism, uses a picture of Marjorie Taylor Greene to send this not-so-subtle message that anybody who's talking about criticizing critical race theory must be a wacko QAnon adherent, right? So that's where I found your writing on this stuff and found it to be highly nuanced, highly empathetic, and highly informed. I think there are other people out there doing the same thing. I mean, people like John McWhorter, yep. Ben Lowry, or Coleman Hughes. And the sad thing is that so many of us have been forced out of what used to be mainstream publications. The good thing is that they don't have the power they used to as gatekeepers. And that, of course, that's why the New York Times is worried about Substack, because we're actually growing in numbers and more and more people find you. And, you know, the piece like I wrote this last Friday, you know, it was gone out as it had about a quarter of a million people read it. Mm. 
it doesn't make any difference whether it's in the New York magazine or in my own Substack, except I get paid more on Substack than New York magazine. There seems to be like the right labels the mainstream media is lying. The left says it's 100% true. But one of the things you've argued to help me understand is that you say that journalism today exists to promote a narrative as opposed to exploring the issues objectively. Tell me more about that. And why is that so critically important? Well, a few things I think happened came together. And one was, of course, the crisis in mainstream media when they began to lose a lot of money and with the internet. And so they were in very, very uh, tight circumstances. And they hired a lot of very young people disproportionately out of college who came in to these big lumbering dying organizations and they used them to get traffic, which meant the usual incentives of social media. But they also hired a bunch of people who had recently come out of the newly radicalized campuses. Now, the core idea from those campuses, the core idea of, of critical theory, is that there is no such thing as objectivity. And in fact, all that means is you're white. It's a way in which you disguise your bias. It isn't one, a way in which you try and get to something called the truth. So if there is no such thing as the objective truth, if it's all simply a function of the powers that be in society, and you're representing those powers, then of course, what's the point of pretending to be objective? Why not actually be activists as writers and attempt to fight against the powers that be as opposed to assume the status quo? And so that means that if you're a black writer, you have to write from the perspective of critical race theory. If you are a gay writer, you write from the perspective of critical queer theory, which means that you've already accepted that the truth about the world, they smuggle in this truth, is really a function of these vying oppressions on the basis of identity. And that is the core reality. So you're never just an individual writer. I have to be a white, male, in my case, homosexual, cisgendered, whatever. <laughs> you, can go, you can go down the list of things I am or am not. And that is as important as what I say. In fact, that identity can make what I say irrelevant or relevant. So, of course, if objectivity has no role to play, as Nicole Hannah-Jones insists, as people like Wesley Lowry exist, then, of course, let us just take the truth or the facts that we can find out there and spin them as a narrative to change society, to unseat what they regard as white supremacy, to unseat patriarchy, to unseat cis-heteronormative transphobia, for example. And that's what they do. And so if something emerges that actually violates that narrative, you ignore it because you're not there to bring up objections. You're not there to give aid and comfort to the enemy, aid and comfort to these forces of white supremacy. So don't concede anything. And when you have an entire generation of journalists believing it's their job to pursue in journalism narratives that will help them challenge the world and end racism as we know it, then of course we don't have objectivity. We don't have doubt for that matter. We know the story we're going to run before you start writing it. And you can look at the Washington Post and the New York Times today, and there isn't a single one that qualifies, complicates, or in any way suggests there might be an alternative view to what they're saying. And it is systematic. You go, I mean, I cite one of the leaked editorial meetings at the New York Times, where one of the staffers says, should not we be doing the 1619 project in every story? 
so that every story reflects that racism is foundational to America and America is foundationally a white supremacy. We should do it in sports. We should do it in culture. We should do it in every single possible dynamic. And Dean Paquette, the executive editor, said, he said, yes, yes, and we need to teach our, teach, use that word, teach our readers to think that way. Well, that's not journalism. <laughs> if I want to go to a newspaper, I want to find out the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want to find out what other people are saying. I want to hear the other point of view. I want a journalist to go out there with no idea what story she's going to find, but stumbles across facts that actually help us understand things a little bit better. I want to read the paper without thinking I'm being fed a line every day. I wanted to read about the final in the European Cup with England and Italy, and I had to get through two long pieces about why England's team represents a new counter to white supremacy in England on the front page of the New York Times. And for fuck's sake, it's football. <laughs> I, I, I want to know who won, who lost. I want to know what happened. I, I don't want to hear this as a news story. If you want to run an op-ed, fine. But as a news story, and when I look at the op-ed pages of the New York Times, and they have all the little pictures next to them now, they have the pictures next to them. They never used to. So you can make sure they're all the right race and gender and color and there isn't a single diversion view among any of them. They're exact, they have all the same positions, except they all have different color skin and different identity. If you just, that's, that's just not journalism to me. Journalism is about unsettling people, including ourselves. It's about challenging the biases we have within ourselves. And it is about believing that we don't live in some world of competing oppressive power structures. We live in a complicated world in which individuals can go out there and find the truth as best they can. They won't find it forever and they won't find it perfectly, but they will find the truth. And the response to that has to be saying, look, I found some other truth that might complicate that. Not, I'm not listening to you, you're white. I'm not listening to you, you're black. Or you can't talk or write about these things because you're white. Well, f*** that. No, we live in a free society with the First Amendment. Anybody can write about anyone freely without ever having their ability to make a judgment questioned because of their identity. This book is really one individual going through history and saying, well, I kind of love Princess Anna or Monica Lewinsky really had it rough, didn't she? Or it's important to point out this is torture under Bush, not enhanced interrogation. Or how are we going to stop Barack Obama becoming president? And none of these things in my view, my columns and writing, can be seen as if they're coming from one political agenda. I supported Reagan and Bush and then turned around and supported Clinton, then supported Bush, depending upon the issues of the day and my own judgment. Now, I may be wrong, and I have been wrong. I admitted that, and I have an essay in the book, How I Got Iraq Wrong, where right. I just beat myself bloody, and rightfully so, for screwing up so massively on one major political decision, but it's just me. I'm answerable. It's no agenda. It's no truth. It's just an individual writer trying to make sense of the world. Does being gay give you permission to write about topics, including race, that you otherwise couldn't get away with? Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't matter anymore. Gay How about being bald? How about being bald? Does that help you? Well, <laughs> I'm a gay, white, cis man. I'm, a, I'm a, the oppressor at this point. I think there's this horrible idea that you have to be gay to write about gay stuff. The truth is when I wrote about the gay stuff, and I have done, and you can read this stuff, I'm, for example, in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, there's a long essay which talks as frankly as I can about the flaws of ACT UP, 
about the ways in which the gay community was divided, the ways in which black and whites differed in response to AIDS, the way in which HIV positive and HIV negative people were fighting each other, things that the mainstream media would not report that I, as a gay man, maybe had a better insight because I was in the middle of it at the time. But my job was not to boost the gays. It was to tell the truth. Right. And there's no topic that is more visceral than reading in the present tense about the AIDS crisis, especially for somebody as a straight person felt like it was happening in a parallel universe, right? Will you tell the story about what it was like to watch your friend Patrick die? Well, it, it was it's life-changing, obviously. And we're both the same age. When we found out we had HIV within a few weeks of each other. And I nursed him to death over the following two years, and I lived. And there is something uh, quite, first of all, it's a terrifying death. People forget. People didn't just like go to hospital and quietly die. They were tormented by a million different diseases that came at them. Toxoplasmosis, where you suddenly you wake up in the morning and you don't know how to tie your shoes. Or cryptosporidium, where suddenly a parasite in your digestive system is eating all your food before you can, so you starve to death. Or pneumocystis, in which your lungs just simply completely freeze up and you can't breathe. Carposis sarcoma, which is this nasty uh, sores that come all over your body, those black patches that people use to identify. Or things like neuropathy, where every single part of your skin is so sensitive and hurts so much that if you so much as drop an edge of a sheet against someone's feet, they will scream in pain. These were people who were dying awful deaths, like skeletons shitting themselves in ways that were just so undignified. They were stripped of their dignity. And I was, you know, I was going through that. I was editor of the New Republic as this was happening. And I, I just had to try and balance those two things. And I had to write about it, obviously, because I could see it so much. And other people could live their lives without seeing it at all. But I wanted to do so in a way that was immediate and compelling to people, regardless if they were gay or straight, to portray this as a, as a human event, not a political one. It drove me a little nuts, for example, to go to see Angels in America and see men with AIDS in America conscripted to a previous ideology celebrating communism in the United States. What a gay man dying of AIDS had to do with Ethel Rosenberg's innocence, I have no idea. But that was Tony Kushner's agenda. Or similarly, some of the hysterics of Larry Kramer. I wanted to be the honest writer. Obviously, I was committed. I mean, I was absolutely committed to helping those men. But I didn't want to, for example, abandon some principles in doing so. I didn't want to out people against their will to punish them for not being courageous enough in the fight against AIDS. I felt that was, that was just punitive and to some extent homophobic fought for the right for HIV-positive people to have actual sex lives and, and not to be treated as these permanent pariahs. But I also wanted to point out there were excesses in AIDS activism and that some of it was bullshit. When the new drugs came in and were saving people's lives, some of the gay groups, were ironically, played it down, didn't celebrate this, didn't get it out there, were criticizing me quite strongly for giving hope. I remember my first gay piece, Gay Life, Gay Death in the New Republic, which was the first cover story in a Washington magazine, which pink triangle on the cover. The gay magazine, the other gay magazine in America, the Christopher Street, it was called, did a parody of it, a vicious attack on the piece saying, gay life, gay baloney. I was called an antichrist by ACT UP. I mean, it's, I mean, some people say I've sought this out. I haven't. I just think that in most times, especially difficult times, 
telling the truth will not actually please either tribe because the truth actually almost always has something in it that makes either side embarrassed or awkward about. It's the job of the writer to embarrass them. It isn't to support them. Even though you may ultimately be on the side of what you think is the right side, your job is to tell the truth as far as you can. You talked about outing people. You had to come out to your friends and family, and you tell a particularly poignant story about telling your dad you were gay. Yeah. My dad was always a tough cookie. I mean, I lost him last year, so I've been thinking about him a little bit. You know, he's a big jock, big straight jock, captain of his rugby team and high school captain of the town rugby team, drinker. This is a small town in England, right? Not London, not progressive, not... uh... No, just a little rural town in southern England, pretty conservative, Basically England, you know, middle fucking England, (laughs) Uh, the kind of people that will be absolutely miserable today because of the Euro Cup final, those people. And so my brother and sister really didn't want me to tell him because they just worried that he might react very strongly. A couple of times they'd heard him say a couple of things that they were concerned about. But anyway, and and the upshot is I got my mom and dad together and sat them down and said, um, you know, this was in the this in the 80s. It's a whole different world back then when you told your parents you were gay it was a really big deal much more so than it is today and my mom said what i said i'm a homosexual she said what does that mean and i said um i'm a homosexual (laughs) i always have been i always will be and she said oh my god i'd better go make a cup of tea which is of course what every solid english person will do when the shit really hits the fan then she left leaving me with my dad who was (laughs) at that point, bent double in the chair. And I I could see suddenly to my immense shock that he was sobbing. And I was just like, Jesus, that's the one thing I didn't expect from my dad. I've never seen him cry. He's not the person to cry. He cried when Jack Kennedy died and when his mother died, but that was it. So I said, Dad, why are you crying? Please tell me, because I want to address whatever you're feeling. And he finally looked up and he said to me, I'm crying because of everything you must have gone through when you were growing up and I never did anything to help you. And in an instant, he just saw me as a boy. He saw me suddenly all those years. He saw that I was struggling. He saw that he'd seen that, but had looked away. But at that point we came together and it was, it was a moment I think of when non-Christians and I am a Christian, when, if they asked me for what the meaning of grace is, I would say that is definition of grace. It's like when something happens unexpected that is utterly benign and beneficent and wonderful in which someone's character or life just opens up to a new vista unexpectedly, and that's grace. And the book also has a long essay on Pope Francis. It has essays defending what I call moderation in religion as opposed to fundamentalism. I've long had fights with my friends, like my old friend, late friend Christopher Hitchens, and, and even often on Bill Maher, you see me going at Bill over religion. What I hope the book does is have essays that explain how someone need not be a fundamentalist, need not be a crazy person, but can have a belief in God that is full of doubt, that is marked more by humility than by certainty, and that attempts to focus on what we do in our lives rather than doctrines we can't really ultimately prove or disprove. And that is a kind of Catholicism that I 
I'm part of, I think, and was brought up in and have come to analyze more and more. And one of the things I also try and do in the book, for example, is I talk a lot about psychedelic drugs and the the weird resonance between psychedelic experience and Christian spirituality and other forms of spirituality. This is a book also that's about my evolving relationship to my faith, uh, which again, I'm not supposed to have because I'm homosexual. And, you know, people would say to me all the time, but how can you be gay and Catholic? Well, there's and, a lot of priests that fit that bill yeah, well, quite well. well. Priests, priests definitely show that that's perfectly possible. Yes. Priests actually show it may be difficult to be a heterosexual and Catholic. But when I was asked that question, I had a simple answer, which is I'm openly gay because I'm Catholic. Because the one thing I was taught as a Catholic boy was to tell the truth. Lying about myself, I certainly knew that couldn't be part of it. And the first person I say this in the book, the first person I came out to was God in prayer before going to communion one day. It's like, please, I don't know what the hell is happening with me, but please help me out with that weird thing that's did, happening. Did, did God respond and say, oh, I know. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> believe me, Andrew, I'm aware of this. Yes. <laughs> a, there was a slight chuckle from on high. <laughs> you're telling me. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what's, again, so you're a multidimensional person and your faith and your homosexuality exist inside of you. And today you're not supposed to have, we as human beings aren't supposed to have any contradictory parts of our ethos, right? And yet you make a pretty compelling argument that the existence, the rise of wokeism, the rise of Trumpism, the rise of materialism is in nationalism is due in large part to an absence of faith on a lot of people's parts. Yeah, I think that faith can make the incoherent coherent in a way. The truth is, as in the modern world, we've gotten much more complicated as people. There are many more influences on us than used to be the case. You could grow up in a small town, you know, in the 19th century and and never know anything outside of that small town for your whole life. Now, we meet people from different countries, different languages. We are full of different influences on ourselves. And I think the goal is to accept that our identity actually is incredibly complex, that you can't reduce someone to being white. You can't reduce someone to being black. These things are just part of complicated human beings whose individuality is what matters. And this, I think, is the other big fight. It is like, I really want to defend the individual with all her quirkiness and unique influences. If you think of intersectionality as this argument, it's a rather banal argument that, that we're all part of these different groups and that we have to accept that we are impacted by oppression in 15 ways at once. Well, turn that around and say that, in fact, we are challenged by 15 different aspects of freedom, not oppression, 15 different aspects that we can express that are part of our unique identity, our Catholicism, well, in my case, my Catholicism, my homosexuality, my love of dogs, my liking of watching Doctor Who or you know, <laughs> a whole variety of different things. You can, if you take intersectionality to its logical conclusion and add the 3,000 intersectional identities that you have, you end up with individuality. And I think the key thing is to defend the individual against all these group identities trying to control him or her. That's not the American way. I mean, one reason I immigrated is because I love this country's celebration of the individual and the individual's ability to make sense of his or her life, even if no one else understands it, even if no one else gets it. And we should allow and maximize the freedom of people to be their complicated selves 
you see our inability to do this, which is so sad. People looked at Obama and said, black man. They didn't look at him and say, you know, actually, kind of waspy. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, a moderate. Actually, kind of cerebral. Intellectual. Actually, monogamous and a great father. And they wanted, left wants to see him as this black liberator. The right wants to see him as this black nightmare. In fact, he's something else entirely. And this is something we have to, you know, grapple with and, and make sure that we're not coercing people into identifications that are really crude reductions of who they are in all their complexity. We're wrapping up here, but just two more questions. What makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is, is the knowledge uh, from my faith, really, that all will be well and all manner of things shall be well that there is a force in the universe, and I don't want to, to belittle it by naming it, that will make it all, all right in the end. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. <laughs> make that distinguish there. Well, optimism is looking at the current situation and projecting it into the future and saying, oh, it's going to be fine. Hope is looking at the situation and realizing it's absolutely there's nothing going to go right. Right. But withholding within yourself the possibility of a sudden revelation, a sudden moment of grace, as it were. I'm thinking of Havel's description of this in Eastern Europe, when there was no reason for him to be optimistic that the Soviet control would ever end, but because he could look at the power structures and the military and all the rest of it. But he insisted that hope was still possible because humankind must never give, get rid of hope. It's the knowledge that grace will appear. Last question. Do you feel rich? Rich. <clears throat> I have a strange relationship to money, which is I really panicked about it. I've always been super fiscally conservative in which I've saved from the first paycheck I ever got. So I, I paid off my mortgages as soon as I could. I've always expected the worst to happen. But my view is that the only point of money is freedom. If it becomes a form of imprisonment, then it's clearly a problem. If you're weighed down by all the obligations of property and possessions and all the rest of it, it's not freedom at all. And certainly for a writer to have enough money to have enough fuck you money so that you're not constantly desperate to be employed so that you can, you can at times challenge employers, you can be fired and can survive because you want to keep your independence, then that use of money, I think is really good for a writer. But and ultimately, again, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in wealth as a means for happiness. I can see it as a means for security and for not being constantly anxious about where the next paycheck is coming from or how are you going to afford that. I can see that. But I see some of the wealthiest friends I know and they're not happier. And in fact, the less you have, the freer you can be. And so I've always had that sort of indifference to it, really, except, of course, and my friends say, well, yeah, you say you were different, but look at you, you've saved up all this money, you have, a, you have these two properties now. Yeah, but um, that's just to make sure I won't go, at some point, I won't really be in trouble. That's not for its own sake. I sit here in this lovely little cottage I bought in Provincetown a while back, and yeah, I'm rich in sense of I'm incredibly privileged in terms of the amount of freedom I have, the amount of money I have. 
and the opportunity I have to get my opinions out there. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. But at the same time, I hate that word privilege because certainly when I came, when I came from England, no family, no person in my family got to college before. It's not like I ever had any money behind me. I got everything through scholarships. I worked hard. So privilege is at least earned privilege, put it that way. And to that extent, I'm still, you know, I'm still relatively conservative. I kind of believe that people should keep a lot of what they make. If they want to give it away, great. But I don't like them having it all taken away by the government before they even have a chance to enjoy it or to give it to whoever they so wish. All right. Andrew Sullivan, the new book is called Out on a Limb, Selected Writing, 1989 to 2021. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Where else can our listeners find out more about you? The Weekly Dish, Substack, every Friday, column and a whole variety of other features, dissents, my responding to readers, the great view from your window contest, which is one of the most popular contests on the web. Go check it out. That's where most of my work can be found at this point. The Weekly Dish, Substack. Awesome. Andrew, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. You, you gird my loins and improve my spirits. Uh, <laughs> I like it, You know, the thing is that if you would listen to Twitter, so you'd think everybody hates me. You'd think that everybody hates this kind of writing. And it's so great to re- find people who really don't, who, who kind of understand what you're doing. And that's why, that's why I'm thrilled to put out this book and why, you know, the, the dish now has, it's closing in on 100,000 people we email every Friday. It has consistently done well. And so I got to have faith that there is a silent majority of people out there who are prepared to read people, not to confirm exactly what they already believe, but to be taken on a bit of a journey and to challenge their own ideas and arguments. That's why I wanted so much to have you on, because I think that we all need to go to the mental gym more often than we do. You're a great trainer in that mental gym. So I thank you for your work. Uh, You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, I girded Andrew Sullivan's loins. How about that? Didn't expect to hear that one. And surely I'm not the only dude to ever do that. But I am proud to share his point of view with you because his writing has helped me think more critically about issues that really matter to our country. Let's jump to the takeaways. Number one, be a courageous and informed individual. Do the reading. With great empathy, think through the context of history that has led us to where we are. Our history of slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow is absolutely atrocious. And we have to admit that. We have to look at redlining and decades of hiring discrimination since Jim Crow and recognize that it's led us with a huge racial wealth gap. On the other hand, we also have to have a clear-eyed view of the future where we say, okay, we solve these problems by creating economic opportunity, not by stigmatizing one side or the other. So don't let your friends get away using racist language or even subtly racist language, but also be aware of the language on the other side of the argument, because it's actually pretty racist to suggest that black Americans can't compete with whites or Asians in the classroom or on the SAT. Yet that's kind of what they want you to believe. Number two, be skeptical whenever someone uses guilt or fear to try to control your thinking. Whether it's a religion or political philosophy, institutions want you to feel scared or guilty so they can control you. The ideas being peddled by either extreme right now are power grabs. That is what they are. The fear being peddled on cable news is not meant to inform you or make you a smarter, independent thinker. It's to get you to share that on your social media feeds and to tune back in tomorrow night. So be selective, not only in what you consume, but especially in what you share on social media because it's not meant 
to make you smarter. Number three, support independent writers. Subscribe to Andrew's newsletter, The Dish on Substack. I do. I pay because it's worth paying for. By the way, I also subscribe to the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, Foreign Affairs. I consume as much news and different points of view as I can. But let's be honest about the political and editorial skew that each of these outlets brings to the table. That's all I'm trying to say. Substack and these independent voices are where I'm finding a lot of the most thought-provoking and honest writing on complex issues. The other writers that Andrew mentioned are following Glenn Lowry. That's L-O-U-R-Y. He is a black economist at Brown University, and he's got a lot of very interesting things to say. Zaid Jalani, J-I-L-A-N-I. Coleman Hughes, also, he's got a great podcast with great guests from many different viewpoints. He's a young African-American writer, very smart, very thoughtful. You'll enjoy him. And John McWhorter, M-C-W-H-O-R-T-E-R, happens to be African-American as well. I guess he doesn't happen to be. It wasn't an accident. He's black because his parents were black, apparently. Anyway, these are independent people that you might find interesting. Glenn Lowry, Zaid Jelani, Coleman Hughes, and John McWhorter. That's it. There you go. There's your takeaways. Okay, next week on the podcast, we're continuing a little bit down the political path. This one's going to be a little bit less controversial. My guest is Charlie Whelan. He teaches economics and public policy at Dartmouth. We're going to talk about several of his books, including Naked Money, Naked Economics, and The Centrist Manifesto. So more of that centrist theme, y'all. Tune back in next week. We'll get smarter together. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. Bye.